turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians 6, we'll read the first eight verses together, beginning in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me now in prayer? Rock of Ages, we come before you once again, relying on your solid justice. You are the rock. Your work is perfect, and all your ways are justice. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right are you. But Father, we live in a world that is devoid of justice. You see it. You see even the injustices that we ourselves ignore or explain away. You see even to the depths of our hearts. And truthfully, Father, this week we've shown in in so many ways that still we are not like you. So often we are selfish. We frame matters of justice or injustice in terms of our own perspective instead of your perspective. We explain away our own unrighteousness and magnify the unrighteousness of others. Father, we come before you today desperately in need of your Spirit's guidance and power. I pray first of all, Father, that you would open up the eyes of our minds to understand the truth of your word. And then I pray that you would give us the spiritual ability to respond with faith, obedience, and love. And Father, I pray for those in this room today who uh, are on the fence, unsure of whether or not they will submit to you as their Lord and Savior. I, I pray that you would open eyes today 
and that you would make us broken before you, not so that we might feel bad, but so that we might experience a sorrow that leads to repentance and a repentance that leads to holiness and a holiness that is characterized by those who can be called the sons and daughters of God. Father, we pray the same thing for those ministering throughout our city. Uh, It's uh, the Lord's day. It's not just about us. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters in other congregations. I think especially of uh, uh, High Ridge Church right now and uh, their pastor Ryan Sims, that you would, I just ask that you would fill them with your spirit and that you would make that congregation uh, wise, uh, that, that they would understand the depths and the, the, great, uh, the, the, the great depths of your love and Uh, that they would love one another as you have loved us. Father, we pray as well for the W family as they minister in another church this morning. I pray that you would anoint our brother with your power and your spirit to preach your word faithfully. And Father, we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Out of all the storylines, going into the most recent Super Bowl between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles. You don't even know what I'm going to say. One of the most intriguing was the relationship between two players who actually never had a chance to meet on the field after the coin toss, Philadelphia Eagles center Jason Kelsey and Kansas City Chiefs star tight end Travis Kelsey, both named Kelsey because they are, in fact, brothers. The Kelsey brothers, their friendship off the field, their rivalry in Super Bowl 54 had captured the interest of news outlets across the country because in spite of the fact that they played for opposing teams, they seemed to possess a tenacious loyalty to one another and to their parents. When Travis won and Jason lost and they were able to talk about it on their popular podcast, tears were shed, not because of the outcome of the game, but because they had made their mother proud. See, we Americans, that wasn't so bad, was it? Americans love our sports siblings. The Mannings, the Watts, the Currys, the Williams sisters, all capture our interest. Riley and Corey going, you know. Why do they capture our interest? Because in public, at least, they seem to maintain a wholesome loyalty to one another that transcends even the intense competition of whatever game they've mastered. You see, even the wide world of sports recognizes that it is a good and right thing for siblings to get along, to love each other, to argue, yes, To disagree, yes, but to ultimately move past the tiffs and the spats and stick together through thick and thin. But what about when the opposite is the case? Have you ever experienced that? I'm the second of five siblings. My sister 
came first, then me three years later, then another sister three years later, then another sister, and finally a brother who is more than 12 years younger than me. We didn't always get along. We still don't always get along. Between our differences in gender and age and personality and the fact that we were human beings underneath the same roof, we experienced tension. I was never tempted to believe we were the only ones, but if I had been tempted to believe that, having children of my own disabused me of the notion all family groups experience tension. Sibling squabbles. But shouldn't our relationship as brothers and sisters absorb the shock of these disputes? Shouldn't we be quick to forgive? Shouldn't we be quick to reconcile? Shouldn't we be allergic to the possibility that other people see us fighting with one another? Have you ever uh, experienced that? Isn't that the worst when you're at your friend's house and you're there with your friend and his brother and he start to fight and you're just sitting there watching? So awkward, not a good look, not a good reflection on the family. Well, it would seem that the Corinthian Christians were struggling with this very thing. They were experiencing sibling squabbles. And those squabbles were spilling over into the public eye and had even made their way into the public courtroom. And the apostle is mortified, but he's willing to patiently teach the embattled church. And, and we get to sit in and listen because I'm sure we'll need to know about this thing sooner or later. You know, it's not every squabble that escalates into a lawsuit. And I'm sure most of you came into this room this morning uh, not thinking, hey, I'm going to sue the person in the pew next to me. But the truth of the matter is, every church deals with this type of thing. And Paul's message is pretty simple in these verses squabbles between siblings should be settled by the saints. Squabbles between siblings should be settled by the saints. Not the unjust magistrates downtown, not the world, not unbelievers, by the saints. Lawsuits, petty matters of legal dispute should never be dragged before an unjust judge. They should be handled in-house. Now, this is the type of passage that seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? But it would be very, very easy to misapply. Uh, what's more, cynical men and women might use a passage like this to actually take advantage of unsuspecting Christians who do not understand what it is teaching. And so we, we need to take our time and we need to ask ourselves three questions. First of all, what was the situation specifically? Secondly, what was wrong with the situation? And then thirdly, what is some practical counsel that I can take with me today so that when we face these issues, we are not drawn away by the deception, the, the deception of those who would take advantage of God's church. So first of all, notice with me, what was the situation? And we need to park on this for just a moment because it would be very easy for us to make false assumptions about what was going on in the city of Corinth. Notice verse 1. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now notice... The, the, the main verbal unit in this verse is in the present tense. Uh, in 
the Greek language, that means that the emphasis is on the continuing nature of the reality described. It's not theoretical, in other words. This is a real issue. This is a reality the Corinthian church is currently dealing with. Now think about what that means. That means, folks, that whatever is going on, the Corinthian believers have at least one specific instance to tie this instruction to. It's not instruction for a rainy day just in case. It's not a series of blanket statements offered to the church just at random. No, Paul is addressing something specific. He's addressing specific example or examples. So uh, this is helpful for the Corinthian believers, but for us, it, it makes it a little bit more difficult because there's not an answer key that we can go to and look at and say, okay, well, what exactly is the situation that Paul is addressing? The only things we know about it have to be gleaned from this text itself. The Corinthians knew exactly what Paul was talking about, but we can only glean as many details as he includes. Okay, well then what can we conclude? Notice that Paul, first of all, is addressing a civil matter, not a criminal matter. He's addressing a civil matter, not a criminal matter. I'm no expert in the inner workings of the ancient Roman legal system. But it would seem when you compare this passage to Paul's uh, other letter, uh, one of Paul's other letters, uh, specifically Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, that there is a kind of God-given authority wielded by the state. The, 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 uh, Paul tells us that the, the leaders, they bear the sword. They don't bear the sword in vain. What does that mean? That means that the Roman government in Paul's day had the God-given right and, and even, excuse me, the responsibility to wage just war, and to punish evildoers up to and including execution or capital punishment. That's what Paul says. He says they don't bear the sword in vain. They're God's servants for your good. Now, who was, just a quiz, a little history, uh, who was the emperor when Paul wrote those words, the, the letter to the Romans? It was Nero, one of the most infamous unjust rulers ever and yet Paul says this civil or this government has the authority to bear the sword that authority would rightly apply in criminal cases robbery rape murder etc the corinthian believers didn't have a say in how rome wielded the sword a lot of times they ruled with injustice we know that to be true sometimes they got it right but the point is that that's not the kind of thing that Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 6. He's addressing what you might call civil matters, disputes that take place not between the citizen and the state, but between the citizen and another citizen. This is not criminal, it's civil. You, For example, you fail to lock up your animals and they get into my grain and they eat it all up and now we're at odds. That's a civil matter. You agree to pay me $500 to do some masonry work for you. It probably would not be, be very good. I wouldn't recommend doing that. Uh, but you agree to pay me $500 to do some masonry work for you, and I get the job done, and then you only give me $200. That's a civil dispute. There's a difference between civil and criminal. So just pause for a second and recognize God is not telling us to handle criminal cases within the four walls of the church. This is very important. He isn't saying that when someone abuses a child or when someone abuses his spouse 
that the elders should give him a stern talking to and then we all go on about our day. That's not what Paul is advocating. Those aren't civil matters. They're criminal matters. So let me just be clear that we recognize the authority of the government to bear the sword in criminal matters. They don't always do it well, but that's not my concern. That's not my job. When I try to go and do their job, things get worse. So I'm going to do my job and I'm going to let the government do their job and of course, we participate in the United States and our government by voting and things like that, running for office. But those matters are not what Paul is addressing here. These are civil matters. Notice as well, these are uh, specific civil disputes and they are small matters. Yes, notice how Paul describes them. Uh, in verse 2, he calls them trivial cases. That may actually be a technical term referring to what we might call small claims today. In verse 3, he says they are matters pertaining to this life. In Greek, that's actually one word, and it has to do with matters of money or property. Small claims don't involve life or death. They don't put you in danger of losing everything. They, uh, just to give us a frame of reference, uh, small claims in our own state, I looked this up on the internet, so I'm sure it's right, uh, small claims in our own state involve uh, values up to $20,000. So if you defraud me, of $20,000, that would hurt a lot. That would, I would feel that. If you defrauded me of $500 or $1,000, that would hurt a lot. But, honestly, I wouldn't die. I would still find a way to put a roof over my family's head. I would still have the ability to put food in their mouths. Small claims aren't life and death. Uh, finally, I just want to point out that these disputes are, in and of themselves, unjust. So they're not criminal matters, they're civil matters. They are small claims, they're not large claims. They're in and of themselves unjust. Keep in mind the term that Paul chooses to use when speaking of the magistrate before whom these cases were being presented. He says, what are you doing? You're taking these cases, these matters, and you're bringing them before the unrighteous. You know another translation for that word unrighteous? Unjust. You're bringing these matters before an unjust Judge, why would they do that? Well, notice verse 8. You yourselves wrong and defraud. There it is right there. Why are they bringing these cases before an unjust judge? It's because they're after an unjust outcome. They want to wrong their brother. They want to defraud him. They just want to win at all costs. They want to walk away with the other person's money in their pocket. So what's happening? Has Paul just randomly decided to start teaching on the topic of lawsuits? No. There's a specific situation. These members in the church are taking specific trivial disputes to a corrupt magistrate in order to wrong and defraud their brother. And the result is that the entire Christian community in Corinth is being slandered by their neighbors in the city. That was the situation. Okay, does that ever happen today? Have you ever heard of something like that taking place? Two people belonging to the same church get involved in some sort of business relationship with one another. Uh, 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 money is being exchanged. Maybe it's an employer-employee relationship. Maybe it's a business that provides a service or sells a product, and another believer in the church has purchased that product or that service, and inevitably, eventually, the expectations and the reality are far apart from one another and you experience a gap between what you expected and what you paid for and what you actually got, 
And then that gap becomes wide enough that you feel you've been wronged. Maybe you can even put a price tag on that wrong. I did business. I conducted business with this person in the church. They sit across the room, and it cost me That's the situation that Paul is talking about here. What would you do? Well, some of the believers in Corinth were going after that money before a judge with questionable ethics. That was the situation, and therefore the answer to our first question. Okay, question number two. What was so bad about that? What was wrong with the situation? Why was that a problem? Obviously, Paul doesn't approve of what's taking place, and he essentially offers three reasons why the lawsuits being brought before the civil magistrates were unbecoming of a Christian. First of all, from verses 2 through 4, the first problem with these lawsuits is they were stupid. They were stupid. Now, I know kids, some of you are not allowed to say that word. But when you get older, you'll learn that there are times when it is appropriate to say, when it just fits, and this is one of those times. These are stupid lawsuits. You say, Jake, what do you mean? Well, notice in the first place the way Paul argues. Just about every sentence in this passage is a question. And what kind of question is it? It's a rhetorical question. I just did that, okay? I just asked you a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question. This is kind of like, it's not to, to receive an answer. It's to get the Corinthians to wake up and start using their brains. It's kind of the way that you talk to your kids or to your employees or to your students. Like, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind when you did that? This is the kind of question that Paul is asking. You're not thinking straight is what he's saying. Notice the realities that they're missing. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Like, does it make sense to seek justice from a magistrate who is known to be susceptible to a bribe when your own community is going to have a role in judging the cosmos? That doesn't make sense. You're being stupid. Squabbles between siblings should be settled by the saints. You say, okay, Jake, actually, I didn't know that. And I'm, I've got questions about that. What in the world is Paul talking about? When is this going to happen? Okay, remember, Jesus is coming again. He's right now. He's ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's praying on behalf of believers. He's sending his spirit into and among his saints. And he's ruling through that. But the day is going to come when the heavens will rend and the Lord Jesus will descend from heaven with a cry of war and he'll do battle against the forces of evil, feed their bodies to the birds of the air, establish his peace on the earth, and then he will sit in judgment over the souls of men and over the spirits chained in oblivion, up to and including the chief deceiver, Satan himself. By the way, If you're not a Christian, you need to know this. You need to understand that you are accountable to a judge. Not a human judge with limited vision, no. Not not a human judge with mixed motives, but the pure, divine, holy judge who sees 
all things, whose eyes pierce into the darkness and see the things that we thought we covered up, things we buried so deeply that we ourselves have forgotten them, that is the judge to whom we will give account. One day each of us is going to stand before that judge and there won't be any excuses. There won't be any pointing fingers at somebody else. It will just be us and all of our thoughts and all of our words and all of our deeds will be exposed and the judgment will be final and it will be righteous and there will be no appeal. Let me ask you a question. Can your righteous deeds carry you through that day? Can they cancel out the ways that you've squandered your one life? A life given to us by God as a gift so that we might obey and love and worship him. I know my righteous deeds aren't even going to come close. According to God's word, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, not one of us will be able to rest on his Righteousness, this is the holy God, perfectly just. He won't say, okay, that's good enough. His judgment is going to be perfect. No, the only way that on that day you can be declared not guilty is if somebody else stands in your place. If somebody takes your place, takes that guilt that you deserve, takes the punishment that you have earned, and if he gives you his righteousness then you can stand before a holy God. And only one name has ever been given that can save us. The name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Only Jesus can make you righteous. Only Jesus can take away your guilt. There is a day coming when he will return and you must be found in him if you are going to withstand that day. But apparently, according to this passage and several others like it, the saints, people like you and me who are in Christ, will actually join Jesus on this great day in judgment. That is mind-boggling. <laughs> that we would sit there as well, that we could be so cleansed, so thoroughly redeemed from all the ways that sin has twisted our judgment and sense of judgment, that one day we'll be able to slice through all the confusion and pass judgment not only on the things of this life, but on angels. And it seems to me there are, there are at least three ways that that's going to take place. First of all, we'll stand in judgment because of our union with Christ. We're one with Christ. The Spirit of God so fundamentally joins us to the Son of God by faith that what Christ does, we do. We are one with Christ. So when Christ returns, we're, we're going to join him in judgment because we are joined to him. Now, there's a whole lot more I could say about that, but that is one way in which we're going to judge the world and judge angels because we are one with Christ. Secondly, the righteous deeds of the saints will stand in judgment over the moral twistedness of the world and the evil angels. That is, when believers walk in the Spirit, when we live in obedience with the law of Christ, those righteous deeds stand in contrast to the wickedness and the evil of the world, and they will stand in judgment against those 
people who don't have the Holy Spirit of God. Our works provide a contrast to the evil works of darkness. And then thirdly, the saints will judge the world in the sense that we will cry, Amen, to the verdicts of the Lord Jesus Christ on that great day when all the wrongs are righted and all the injustice of the world is exposed and every vile spirit and unredeemed sinner will be pronounced guilty. Yes, believer, you will be there and you will say, Jesus, you are right. I agree. It is an awesome, breathtaking thought. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that the saints will stand in judgment of the angels? Like, don't you realize what you are? In fact, you have to understand, Paul is kind of messing with the Corinthian believers a little bit, isn't he? Think back to the first major section of the letter. What were the Corinthians saying about themselves? Hey, we're kings. We're ruling. We're reigning. Look, we've already arrived. We're even past where Paul is. We're past where all the apostles are. They're suffering, not us. We're reigning with Christ. They were bragging and boasting in their identity, even to the point where they were going beyond. They were trying to leapfrog over the cross to get to the crown. And Paul says in this passage, wait, which, which is it? I thought you were kings. I thought you were able to judge the angels. That may even have been one of the slogans that they repeated amongst themselves. But you can't even judge the simple disputes, the squabbles between siblings, the things pertaining to this life, these small claims issues. I thought you were kings. I thought you were going to judge the earth. So Paul's kind of messing with them. He's pulling out one of their slogans and saying, hey, which is it? Folks, when you take your sibling squabbles, not matters of life and death, just quarrels over money, really, and you drag your brothers and sisters into a courtroom, are you really thinking straight? Does that really make sense? Why would you choose a magistrate who has no standing in the church to mediate your dispute? Why would you go to someone who doesn't share in your holy and illustrious identity. That doesn't make sense. Frankly, the first problem with these lawsuits is that they are stupid. No, squabbles between saints, uh, between siblings, they should be settled by the saints. Second problem with these lawsuits, not only are they stupid, they are shameful. They are shameful. Notice verse 5. I say this to your shame, Can it be that there is no one wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? In other words, Paul says, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. (laughs) This is shameful. Everybody in the entire city can see that your talk about being one big family in Christ, and hey, brother this, and hey, sister that, is all just for show. It's totally fake. Three or four thousand dollars is more important to you than your supposed identity as the family of God. This is shameful. Everybody can see that you're a fake. You're not brothers, not brothers in any family that anyone else would want to be a part of if that's what being a brother means. This is why Paul says having lawsuits is already a defeat for you. That's you, plural. That's y'all. Like if anybody, the moment that somebody in the church takes another person in the church to to court in a lawsuit, the entire church loses. It's a defeat for everybody. When I was growing up, I used to think that I could 
look cool by putting down my sister in front of my friends. I wanted them to know that I knew all the ways my sister wasn't cool. I wanted them to think I wasn't like her, like I wasn't lame. First of all, I was not cool. Many of you have already guessed that. But objectively, I was not. But it wasn't really until I had my own kids that it really sunk in with me how ridiculous I looked, how ridiculous I made my entire family look acting like that. We've explained to our kids, you don't ever, ever put your sister down. You don't ever, ever put your brother down to somebody outside our family because when you put them down, you're putting yourself down and you're putting your family down. Don't ever do that. Why? Because it's shameful. This is why squabbles between siblings should be settled by the saints because to drag it out into the world is shameful. Think about it. When we publish on social media just how frustrated we are with church people, when we gossip with our coworkers about people we call brother or sister on Sunday, when we want to win so bad that we don't care what message we're sending about the community of faith, we've already lost. It's already a defeat. It's a loss for the whole church. First problem with these lawsuits is that they were stupid. Second problem is that they were shameful. And then number three, these lawsuits were selfish. They were selfish. Paul asks in verse 7, Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. You see, the Corinthians didn't care that it was stupid. They didn't care that it was shameful. They just wanted to win at all costs. They wanted to get that other person's money and get it in their pocket. They wanted to get paid. They were focused on the bottom line, selfish. And Paul says, why is that so important to you? What is so bad about being cheated? What is so bad about being defrauded? Well, I would lose money. But look, we're talking about small claims, a few thousand dollars. Really? Really? Well, people would take advantage of me. Sure. Listen, you're going to have times when you choose not to get even with that person. It's not going to be fair. You are going to have to absorb an injustice. But Jake, that's going to make me look weak. Friend, you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ. You, think about this, we forget this. You have publicly declared to the world that you were such an evil, wicked sinner that it took the death of Jesus Christ on the cross just to pull you out of that condemned state. You, are, you declared to the world in that baptistry right up there, I am so weak I cannot save myself. Even my good deeds couldn't bring me into right standing with God. I need a Savior. You already told the world that you're weak. Why do you care whether people think you're weak? Who cares what they think? It's not as though the person asking you to suffer injustice hasn't himself suffered the same thing. Isn't it true that as Jesus was being hoisted upon the cross that he prayed, Father, forgive them? When he was reviled, did he revile in return? When the clothes were torn from his back, did he retaliate? No. Is that because Jesus was a glutton for punishment? No. It's not that we go after suffering. 
It's that we endure suffering, and this is why Jesus did it, because he had his eye on a greater prize than vengeance. He wanted the souls of men. So he leaned in, he carried the cross, he despised the shame in order that he might complete a great work of salvation and win many souls to glory. Why would we not rather suffer wrong when we can see all the rewards that come along with that? What does it say about the work of Christ on the cross? What does it say about our identity as saints set apart for God? What does it say about the transforming nature of the gospel when we say, I'm not going to get even? This is the spirit behind Jesus' instructions in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the new Moses seated atop a new Sinai, uttering a new law. The old word was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You get justice no matter what. The new word is, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, give to him your cloak as well. But can you imagine if Christians the world over actually lived this way? If we act, what, what impact would it have on the city of Mineral Wells if we internalized the teachings of Jesus and what Paul is asking us to do? What, what could the world say in accusation? I'll tell you what would happen. The scoffers would be silent. And those who are seeking would bow the knee and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. They would say, I need that. I need that kind of grace. I need to know Jesus too. Squabbles between siblings should be settled by the saints, not in the courts of an unjust judge. That's stupid. Not in the presence of the world. That's shameful. Not so that we might get our pound of flesh. That's selfish. No, we must put on Christ. Have you, have you suffered an injustice at the hands of your brother. Have you been wronged? Have you been defrauded? Well, free yourself from the need to get even with him. Let it go. We've seen the situation. We've come to understand what was wrong with what the Corinthians were doing. So let's ask ourselves a third question. What's some practical counsel that I can take with me today from this text? Because again, most of you I'm looking out at, I, I'm seeing people who are probably not planning to bring a lawsuit the next day or two. So what's a practical counsel that I can take with me today? First of all, and we've already hinted at this, you must be willing to suffer wrong. You must be willing to suffer wrong. Our world hates this. There is a constant cry for equity and justice. And if we're talking about you standing up for the weak, if we're talking about you standing up for the oppressed, if we're talking about you standing up for somebody who doesn't have a voice or who can't speak for themselves, uh, opposing a bully to protect an orphan or a widow or a sojourner, then by all means, show courage, you be brave, you do what you need to do to get justice for that person. But that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about the things that impact you, the suffering that you experience. And if you're going to be like Christ, then you must be willing to suffer wrong. You must be willing to carry your cross. Once, once again, we're back at the cross of Christ. It's the Calvary road. The cross shapes the life of the church. The cross shapes our story as believers. The cross precedes the crown. One day, all the wrongs of the world are going to be righted, but you don't always have to get even. You don't always have to have the last word. You don't need to win every petty dispute between you and your brother. Be willing to suffer wrong. Decide not to get even. Second word of practical counsel. 
Follow the biblical process for conflict resolution. Follow the biblical process for conflict resolution. We talked about this several weeks ago when we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 5. On the one hand, we all need to be willing and eager to, be, to forgive, but there are times when you have to, when you must, engage in some constructive conflict. That's not wrong. You may have to confront your brother. You may have to do it for his sake or for her sake. Sometimes they need that, and in these instances, the Bible guides us through a straightforward process. If you can work it out one-on-one, then do that. If you try to work it out one-on-one and it's not working, then bring in someone who you trust from the church body and ask for their help. Just as a practical matter, if you're really working with your brother toward a resolution instead of against him as an adversary, then bring in someone that you both trust. Try to work out your differences. If you still can't reach a resolution, there are still options. There are Christian arbitration firms. There are firms that do conciliation that you can call upon to mediate a dispute. These firms apply biblical principles in an unbiased way to help you reconcile. They aren't going to help you defraud your brother. They aren't going to help you get your pound of flesh. They aren't going to help you win. They're going to help you reconcile. But if you're interested in justice, then they'll work with both parties to achieve Justice. Of course, sometimes there is a party who is clearly in the right and a party who is clearly in the wrong. It may be an instance where the whole church needs to get involved in a case of discipline. All these cases are different. But follow the biblical process for conflict resolution. Third matter of practical counsel. If we can just kind of zoom out a little bit. Right now, we've been looking at one, one or two trees. But let's zoom out and let's look at the forest as a whole. Think about the picture that Paul is painting in this letter, 1 Corinthians. Remember, go, go, the local church, here, here's the picture. Here's, let me give you the sentence, and then I'm going to explain it, okay? Here's, here it is. The local church ought to be an authoritative community of justice. The local church ought to be an authoritative community of justice. So go back in your mind to the old covenant people of God. This is the soil out of which Paul's instruction grows. Think about that old covenant people. Remember how God made them into a nation. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He led them into the wilderness, and there they are in the wilderness. And what's one of the first things that Moses does? He recognizes this is a great nation. I can't lead these people by myself. And so I'm going to appoint judges and they're going to make sure that justice is enacted in this community. And according to Exodus 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 1, that's exactly what Moses does. So the children of Israel are set up to be an authoritative community of justice. Moses hears all the difficult cases, but all the other small disputes are heard by these other men. And then... God gives them instruction about how he wants them to do that. He says in Exodus 22, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. He says in the next chapter, you shall not fall in with the man, uh, with the many, sorry, to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. 
In other words, God's intention for his old covenant people was that they bear a divinely ordained authority to deal with injustice, and they were to practice that authority purely, without receiving bribes, without showing partiality to the rich or to the poor. What is is it that Paul's advocating here in 1 Corinthians? Here's what he's saying, essentially. He's saying, your local church, Corinthians, your local church ought to be characterized by the same authority and the same justice as the old covenant people of God, if not more so. Do you remember what he said at the end of chapter 5? Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What does he say? Who are the believers supposed to judge? Not those who are outside, those who are inside. See, this is the picture that he's painting. It's a church, a congregation that has authority, not the elders, the congregation has this authority to exercise discernment within the the church. So let me ask you a question. Is our church characterized, is our church characterized by justice? Is it a trustworthy community? Let me ask you another question. Does the church, your church, bear any authority over you? Have you allowed yourself to fall underneath the accountability, not of the elders primarily, but of the congregation as a whole? Are we a just community? Are we an authoritative community? community. Do you see how over and over again the New Testament and particularly this letter casts a vision of the local church that goes way beyond what we often make it out to be? It's not a building, folks. Listen, this is important. It's not, the church is not a building that I go to two or three times a month to listen to preaching and sing a few songs. It's more than that. If that's all the church is to you, then with all due respect, you are missing it and you need to push for more. Let me put it this way. If this week you found yourself, and I I hope this doesn't happen, but if this week you found yourself in a dispute with another brother, would you have the kind of relationship with your church that you could go to the people in your church and say, you know what, I need help with this? Or would you feel alone? See, in our church, we... We have all these different programs that we talk about and and, and jargon that we use. You know, you need to be a part of a community group. You need to come to an equipping class. And most people kind of are like, well, you know, I don't know what that means. And sometimes it gets a little overwhelming because all these terms are unfamiliar to us. And here's all we're trying to do, guys. All we're trying to do is create an opportunity for us to live together in the kind of community where we, when we have a dispute, when we have a difficulty, we know who our people are, and we can come to those people and say, I need help, can you help me? And we actually trust the counsel that they give. See, this is the forest that Paul is showing us. We've looked at one tree. The forest is, the church has to be a certain way for this to work. Why do we have ICBC 101? Why do we talk about church membership? This is not because we want to control your life. It's because we're trying to create these opportunities of relationship and trust. The truth of the matter is you're going to have squabbles with your siblings. That's part of living in the same family. That's just part of reality. But when those squabbles arise, have we developed the kind of relationships with each other? Under the authority of Christ in which we can trust the saints to settle the matter. If we aren't there yet, then what do we need to do to get there? Let's go, guys. Let's get there together. 
Remember, the church is the temple of Christ, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we're situated in the city of man. But Christ calls us and he equips us to be that temple. Let's live out our identity as saints. Set apart for the pleasure of Christ to have fellowship with him. Let's not drag our brothers before the world shamefully. Let's remember that squabbles between siblings should be settled by the saints. Would you pray with me? Father, you're far wiser than we are. And you've set up the church a certain way. And we we thank you for that, Father. We praise you. We've seen time and again how your wisdom, your ways trump the wisdom of the world. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the faith to walk in these things. I pray that you would give us the trust in you to entrust ourselves to a community of faith and to belong and to seek justice and forgiveness among the people of God. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.